When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a 10-part series in which I talk to entrepreneurs about the challenges they've faced in starting and growing their businesses. John Lynch moved from Connecticut to Krakow in 1991 as a volunteer for a US aid program aimed at helping people in the newly liberated Eastern Bloc to set up businesses. After a year, he decided that the opportunity in Poland was so good that he would stay and set up a business himself. He told me the story. I had not thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I didn't come from a business family. I had a fairly conventional corporate career. I studied mechanical engineering. I went to work for Procter & Gamble. Then I went to Wharton Business School. Then I worked for a management consulting firm. So I was looking like a, a fairly typical MBA type of business career path. But when I got to Poland and I started working with Polish entrepreneurs who 18 months earlier were people working in state factories or doing whatever the state had them do, watching people without any business background starting companies, and some of them doing remarkably well. And I thought, well, gosh, if these guys can do it, maybe I can do it. And that was really where the idea started. And I had no idea what business, though. So like good MBAs, my partner and I sat down and wrote a whole list of ideas of possible business areas. What are the major determinants of what we would go into? It would have to require no money because we had none. So we were literally bootstrapping a business. We had both huge loans from business school we were paying off. We were working for this year for $100 a month. So we were making no income during this time. So we basically needed to start a business with no capital. So the ultimate idea to start Linka came from a project, not from a business plan, but a project. The project we had was our friends were visiting And all were asking, where can we get some tourism t-shirts that say Poland or Krakow back in 1991? And we went into town and looked around, and the answer was, you can't. Nobody was doing tourism t-shirts, and we, while still working as consultants in this program, found a company that sold plain t-shirts. We bought 500. We found a little company that prints. We created a number of designs, had this company printed for us, and I went out and sold them in the marketplace at little tourist shops at little hotels, and we sold 500 t-shirts at about $3 profit apiece in the first two weeks. So it was $1,500 in about two weeks, and we said, well, this is definitely enough to live on in Poland, and that was the beginnings of the business. The business environment was completely undeveloped because it didn't have a free market until about one year earlier. So business laws, infrastructure, the practical problems of an entrepreneur back in anywhere in Eastern Europe in 1991-92, were things like uh, getting telephone lines for your company. We had a company, when it had grown from one to three to six to ten people, we still had one telephone line and couldn't get a second one. The telephone company just said, we have no lines, we have no available capacity, and you're going to have to wait six years to get a new telephone line. There were no courier services, no UPS or FedEx or DHL. So when we produced product for clients, we couldn't just send it with the post 
the Polish post back then took 21 days to deliver a package somewhere in Poland. So we had to drive the orders to customers in little cars or send employees on trains and buses across the country to deliver door-to-door to our customers. There were no trained employees. In the beginning, the average age in the company was 21. And so, where were you hiring? We were just hiring locally. My hiring strategy back then was anybody I met in a commercial experience that impressed me, I would offer a job to. And almost everybody I hired back then was on the basis of a customer service experience with them in the marketplace. How big is Lincoln now? There are over 300 employees in the company. We're definitely the largest company of what we do in Central Eastern Europe. So we supply uh, corporate clothing, workwear to KFC, Starbucks, little companies, schools, universities with uh, clothing products with their logo on it. And we do it in a factory in Krakow. And we supply now to 25 countries across Europe. So we really supply the entire European Union and beyond. It was not easy, and it was certainly, this was not the genius Westerner comes over and shows the poor Poles how to do business. I learned more about doing business and being an entrepreneur in Poland from Poles than in all the business schools in the world. So that has been the greatest learning experience of my life. During my university studies, both undergraduate and graduate, I studied quite a bit on international relations. And I'd done a lot of case studies and seen a lot of failures of particularly large American corporations that went abroad and failed miserably mm-hmm. because they did not integrate with the local culture, with the local community, and really understand that doing business in Des Moines is a little bit different than doing business in Krakow or Bratislava. We fortunately went over not as expats working for, I don't know, a big four accounting firm, but as volunteers in a U.S. program where we were trained by State Department language instructors. So we arrived with language skills, and that helped a lot. I would say that was a big part of our early success, that I could interview employees my own, I could meet clients on my own, do a sales pitch in Polish. It was extremely important and very impressive for Polish customers to see an American guy speaking their language, because it's a very difficult language, and very few expats learned it. Second, I I learned Polish culture, and I started to understand Polish people, and there was a completely different way of thinking. Americans are very risk-taking. Sales reps in America are fine with a low base salary and a large commission. They just believe in, if I work hard, I'll make the sale and get my commission. Polish sales reps are very concerned about security. They want to make sure that if nothing sells this month or... I don't know, the Russians attack and all goes to hell, that they're going to have that base salary to pay the rent. So we would try in the beginning to explain this American approach to business and how you could make twice as much if you're good. And we, it just didn't work. The other thing was in the communist times, in the communist system, there was really no upside for speaking up. So in the company, we really would introduce a new program, a new plan, an idea for the business, and the room would be quiet. There'd be not that much feedback. So we really had to encourage people and teach them that it was safe to disagree with the boss. I found that the people I respected most in the early years, but even more today, are people who are brave enough to speak up and just say, listen, John, I think that's a terrible idea. Now, when that first happened, the other people in the room would be sitting quietly thinking, well, this guy's gone. And to get through that, you needed to demonstrate to people that it was safe to speak up. Recently, there was a hostile takeover bit for the business and you needed people to speak up and help 
Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, so over the years of growing my business, I've used outside capital a number of times. I raised private equity earlier in the business, and a few years afterwards, the original partners of mine decided they wanted out of the business, so I needed to raise some funds to buy them out, and I did that in an instrument called mezzanine debt. So raised money, uh, bought it out, I became full owner of the business for the first time, and I had an investment group that also decided after some time that they wanted to get out of the investment and right. I ran into an extremely disturbing situation where I had the company taken from me in a hostile takeover. There was a seizure of my shares. I lost the business. I went into a legal battle to get it back. But at one point during the process, when it was in court, the lawyers had suggested that if we had some sort of a statement from the employees that they were standing behind you, that they really felt that the company was in dire straits without me, the founder back in the business, could the court please rule and give John back his business? Something along right. these lines. So the uh, other shareholders were then in charge of the company because they'd taken it over, were sitting throughout the business with security people and their employees. And so my right. people couldn't exactly just call a meeting and say, well, you all signed this letter for the court to endorse John getting the business back. So they had to organize this almost John Grisham-like effort something from the Polish resistant days where people who were helping me would go around the business and gather in the toilets in the corners of the room and production in the warehouse and explain that they needed to sign this letter to submit to the courts. The lawyers had said if we didn't get at least 30 or 40 signatures, it wouldn't carry much weight. Right. The company at the time had about 170 employees. So we thought if we can get 50 employees to sign this letter, then maybe it would have enough weight to influence the court to reverse the share change. The employees, if they sign this letter, it would be public access information going to the court, and the guys who had taken over the business would see it in a couple of days. So the employees would basically be risking their jobs and their careers by signing this. And out of 170 employees, 158 signed the letter. Every one of them basically putting their jobs on the line to stand behind me and, and support wow. our efforts to win the business back. How did you feel? Well, I, 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 I think I started crying at the time. I was so touched by it. This was just the ultimate testimony to why it pays to have a good culture and a good atmosphere at work and show people that you're fair yourself. Julia Prats of Spain's IESE Business School in Barcelona co-wrote a book about entrepreneurs who launched startups in Central and Eastern Europe shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. She and her co-authors found that many of these companies are now leaders in their sectors, but they first had to overcome huge difficulties. There were many things that all the entrepreneurs around the world would expect before starting that they didn't have. That's why we call them the entrepreneurial icebreakers. Basically, you would expect that the entrepreneur usually has a choice in terms of looking at different opportunities and trying to match those opportunities that are more or less available and crafting their business according to their own abilities. You can choose between different alternative options. That would be the first. The second would be a context that allows you to appropriate value 
right? This is why you want to start. It's because you really believe that you can do a service, but you can also appropriate part of this value. So that's the second thing. The third thing is finding the right resources. It's not only money, it's also people, well-prepared people, and so on and so forth. And finally, a place where you can reinforce the law because basically you are going to be setting contracts with your suppliers, with your employees, and so on and so forth. So you would like to see some kind of mechanisms where you can really enforce the law. So these four conditions that usually are at the basis of an entrepreneurial economy were completely missing back in 1989. That could always become an excuse. I say, if I don't have the Silicon Valley context, I cannot start a business. Well, wrong, right? There are other people that have started great businesses, and they have grown outside and did a a fantastic job. So I would say that that's the message that I would like to send to entrepreneurs or to people in general that want to start a business is like you should not wait until the context is the right one. You will find, if you are a good entrepreneur, you will find the solutions to overcome the problems that the context will put on you. For John Lynch, the biggest difficulties may be behind him, but he is committed to continuing education for both himself and his staff. From those early days, it became very clear that building a good team of people in Central Eastern Europe and Poland was going to be essential to the success of the business. And as time goes on, it's more and more true. Our company has core values that we put forward, and one of the most important ones is that we really believe in investing in people, and that includes myself. And I do that largely through my organization, YPO, which is kind of like a business school for life. So YPO has been my kind of MBA for life. I get business education from fantastic professors here in London, London Business School, from Harvard Business School, from other top universities, and then other successful entrepreneurs. And many of the events are also available for the employees of the company. So I've taken my management team to these international business guru training sessions, and it's been incredible value added for the business. In the next episode, I talk to the founder of an online money transfer business whose venture was made possible by seed funding that came from compensation from the loss of his job after he turned whistleblower. You can catch up on previous episodes of FT Startup Stories by going to our special page, ft.com startup, where you can also find links to FT articles on entrepreneurship and business education. You can also take up our offer of a 25% discount on a subscription to the Financial Times by going to ft.com forward slash startup offer. Until next time, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.